please standing as we read from the Psalms this morning. It's Psalm 139. And I invite you now to hear this psalm as it is a psalm of David that was written as a sign of praise. In other words, it was a song that would be recognized when people would come to worship and it would be recognized when they would go to work and they would be recognized when they would go at nights and prepare their suppers for their families. The most amazing thing about this hymn is it takes something spoken about God and puts it in a personal term. It really brings home the truth of what we teach doctrinally to the experience of what it is to believe in Christ. And so I invite you this morning as we hear God's word to draw your attention to who God is as the psalm reveals it. Hear now the word of God. You have searched me, O Lord, and you have known me. You know when I sit and when I rise. You perceive my thoughts from afar. You discern my going out and my lying down. You are familiar with all my ways. Before a word is on my tongue, you, Lord, know it completely. You hem me in behind and before, and you lay your hand upon me. And such knowledge is too wonderful for me, too lofty for me to attain. Where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I were to go up to the heavens, you are there. And if I were to make my bed in the depths, you are there. If I rise on the wings of the dawn, if I settle on the far side of the sea, even there your hand will guide me, your right hand will hold me fast. If I say, surely the darkness will hide me and the light become night around me, even the darkness will not be dark to you. The night will shine like the day, for, for darkness is as light. You created my innermost being. You knit me together in my mother's womb. I, I praise you because I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Your works are, are, are wonderful. I know them, or I know that full well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in the secret place, when I was woven together in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed body. All the days ordained for me were written in the book or your book before one of them came to be. How precious to me are your thoughts, God. How vast is the sum of them. Were I to count them, they, they would outnumber the grains of sand. When I awake, I am still with you. If only God, you would slay the wicked. Away from me, you who are bloodthirsty. They speak of you with evil intent. Your adversaries misuse your name. Do I not hate those who hate you, Lord, and abhor those who are in rebellion against you? I have nothing but hatred for them. I count them my enemies. Search me. 
and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there is any offensive way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. This is the word of God. You may be seated. I know it is a, a custom in our church to, to stand as we hear God's words read, but it's important that you and I, as we read and think about God's word, that we keep it open. And so I would invite you as you open your Bibles to Psalm 139, because in that psalm, we really find well uh, the answer to the, to the quest of the question that men and women are still searching for today, and that is, who is God? What is he like? And what kind of God is he? That's an honest question these days. Because the truth is, you cannot know who you are unless you know the one who made you. And for some of you, you have given that no more thought than the fact that you had a mother or father who physically came together and you were formed because of their union. But this scripture reveals something more powerful than just the union of a man and a woman to build a family. There's something else that God is communicating to you this morning about him and about you. And more importantly, the reason we're seeing the confusion in our days, and there is great confusion in our culture, is because people don't know who God is any longer. When you think of the fact that when you see a Jeopardy program on TV, do you all know what Jeopardy is, by the way? Ah, if you were to ask the questions from the Bible, almost no one gets those answers anymore. Whereas in the days of past that we knew our country, even in the recent memory of our oldest here, there was a time in which people, whether they believed in Christ or not, knew the truth of what God's Word taught. In fact, there was a time when we used to post the Ten Commandments in public places. In fact, they are posted above the Supreme Court as the Supreme Court rules our lands with its pronouncements and judgments on the law. But it is barred from other places like schools. Why? It's a sign that the knowledge of God's Word is falling away from our public discourse. And yet you and I look at the times we live in and we can see the results. People are asking, is there a God? Who is he? What is God like? And what kind of God is he? The church and the teaching of Christ from the word makes certain that we use certain words that describe God. We use words like personality or person. It comes from the word personalis in the Latin, and it means a distinctive character, essential character of a self-conscious being. And so when you and I begin to think of the God who has revealed himself through Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God who has fully come in the, in the Lord Jesus Christ, one of the things the Bible teaches us is God is not a force like you see in Star Wars. Haven't you seen the Star Wars movie? May the force be with you, as if God is some force at work. No, the Bible says that God is personality. He has a personhood. He is essential in character of being self-conscious. And more importantly, he is reaching out to have a relationship with his creation, meaning you. 
And so when you and I read through this psalm, and it was a long psalm, 24 verses, it speaks of the attributes of God. There are many attributes, probably over 15 that you can find very quickly in the Bible, but David is only singularly looking at four, four particular attributes. And many of you are saying, well, what's an attribute? Well, it's simply this, it is something that's true about who God is. It is impossible for us to fully comprehend God. Therefore, it's important that you and I understand that what we know of God, the knowledge of God comes from what he has revealed, and that comes in the scriptures. And that's why we look to the Bible and we read it constantly is to discover more and more of the personality of God. And so because God has been very gracious to reveal himself throughout the ages to men and women who have sought and and searched for him, but more importantly, that he has taken the initiative in revealing himself to them. We have a record in the Bible of God's revelation to us that is still relevant today. And so though we can't wrap our full minds around who it is that created us in his full and entirety, in essence, we surely can understand some things about God that are true. And there are four things that we learn from the scriptures this morning four things that God reveals to us about himself that in fact your life these are not doctrinal esoteric truths about things that we're studying to memorize they are the truth of who God is and therefore reveal something about who we are as well we will see in the scriptures this morning that first God is omniscience and you say what in the world is that I'm sure you used that term last night over supper didn't you no, that's a word that we don't use hardly any anymore because it's something that really comes from the Latin, which means omni, all, or every, and science, or uh, scientia, which is called knowledge. And so God is all-knowing. He's omnipresent, meaning God's presence is everywhere. He's not bound by a locality or place. And thirdly, that God is omnipotent, that God is able and powerful to do all that he wills without any effort or without any effort on his part. And, and more importantly, that God is, is holy. Now, these important characteristics of God speak to who God is. And because he has created you, it speaks to who you are. Because he is, is all-knowing or omniscient, we are not. Don't you just hate being around people who think they know it all? But God does. God is present everywhere, and we are not. We cannot think of being in any other place than the place that we're in at that moment, and yet God is transcending that reality in our life. And God, more importantly, is all-powerful. He is able to do all his holy will. And then he is holy in that sense that he is distinctly different from us, perfect in his being. You know, I, I thought about this for a long time. I thought, you know, I need you and you need me. We need each other. In fact, we need everyone involved in the work of this country. We are dependent upon others. God is not dependent on any of us. He is self-existent alone. Well, let's look at the passage then, and let's go through this and discover more about who this God is that we worship. And please notice first, when we say we think of God being all-knowing, it means that God sees and knows everything. There's nothing hidden from him. He understands, perceives, and he knows it because he created it. Why is this so important? 
Well, go back to verse 1 of the psalm. Look what David says. He says, you have searched me, past tense. You have searched me, Lord, and know me. You know when I sit down and when I rise. You perceive my thoughts from afar. You discern my going out and my lying down. You are familiar with all my ways, and before a word is on my tongue, you, Lord, know it completely. Wouldn't you love to have that ability? That you could know what somebody's going to say before they say it. And yet the psalmist goes on to say, Yet you hem me in behind and before, and you lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me, too lofty for me to attain. I want you to know after the long life that I've had with my wife, there are times when I don't understand why she can't figure out what I am trying to tell her. Why can't she read my mind? We've been around long enough that she should. Some people have said to me, Robert, you are very predictable, as if they know everything about me. But they don't. And neither does anyone else know anything fully about you. In fact, that's the longing of our hearts is we want to be known, and that's why we enter into the covenant of marriage but it's because we're hoping to find one person that we can reveal ourselves to and know someone so intimately that we feel that life is sweet and shared and we have someone that we can not only know but need be known by and yet we're seeing that institution of marriage frazzling why because there's a realization that marriage will not satisfy this desire to be known well then who can who in the world can satisfy my desire to know me? It is only God. He is all-knowing. And this is what David discovered when he said, You've searched me, Lord. You know me. You know me so well. You know what motivates me to action. You see my daily activities. You, you, you understand what consumes my thoughts. You, God, know what is on my heart. I dare say there's a movie with Mel Gibson. I wish I knew the name of it, but it's a man who has, receives a special gift. He's a pompous, arrogant son of a gun, and he has a very low opinion of women, and suddenly he's given this perception that he can hear women's thoughts. Have you seen the movie? And it, it at first seems to be a wonderful gift because now he can manipulate and use it against women. But as he goes through the movie, he begins to realize that knowing what they think reveals something that he didn't know about himself. I won't tell you the rest of it. You can go find the movie. What would it be like if you knew everything I'm thinking about you? After a while, you would get tired of me, wouldn't you? You wouldn't want to be around me. You would flee from me. You see, that's the truth. Most of us are worried about what other people think about us. Let me give you a, a brief relief. Do you want to really know what people are thinking about you? I can tell you. They're not thinking about you at all. They're only thinking about themselves. That's the curse of the human race. Many of you came into this church building this morning, and you were more concerned about you than anyone else here. Why? Because you know that you are insecure in yourself, that you have many problems and frustrations. 
And when you come to that truth that God knows you, there's only two responses we can give. We either come to God realizing his keen insights of who we are, or we try to hide from him. That's David's point in the second part of this. He says God is omnipresent. He goes on to say in verse 7, where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? As if, let me get out of this place. I'm not sure if I want God to know me as well as he does because I am not comfortable with who I am, what I have said, what I've done, what I have harmed in other people. You see, there, there is this extensive knowledge that I do not live up to what God would expect of me. And so when he cries out, where can I go from your presence? There is a real truth there, isn't there? That when we stand before God and we understand who he is and his knowledge of us, we become very insecure because we realize that we have fallen short of the glory of God, the intention of our creation. And we begin to hide we begin to put on masks. We begin to portray ourselves in ways that are not genuine before God. We excuse our sins and make excuses for others' sins. And yet the most amazing thing is that there David reveals in his own heart the truth of what he learns of God. If I go to the heavens, you are there. If I make my beds in the depths, you're there. If I rise on the wings of the dawn, you're there. Where can I flee from your presence? Nowhere. Not one place. There is no place I can free, flee God's presence. Did you know that God was calling upon you this morning before you ever woken to the dawn? He was with you in your sleep? If that's true, then, then God was with you and very much aware of your deeds, your actions, your behavior, your thoughts, in the greatest moment of love that you gave to another person, but he was also there the moment you sinned greatly against him or other people. He saw everything. He knows you. Yet in verse 10, listen to this. Even there, your hand will guide me. Your right hand will hold me fast. Total opposite of what we'd expect, isn't it? We would expect God would punish us for our sin. David says, no, God comes to bring salvation to you. You see, the hand of God is an image in the Old Testament where God intervenes in the lives of humans, and he does so that he might be near us. That's the whole purpose of Christ coming into the world. He made his tabernacle among us. He made his tent among us, that God's purpose in creating you was to know the living God, to love him, and pursue him. And the joy of hearing these verses is that God in his work of salvation is wanting to offer himself to you knowing what he knows about you so that through him 
you might enjoy his presence and find the healing, the salvation from your sins that you so desperately know is within your life. This is why he says the hand will guide you and surround you. Even there, your, your work is at, your, your might, your grace is at work in my life to conform me, to change me, to draw me back to you. That's what we were confessing this morning in our confession when, when we spoke those words in answer to the question, uh, what, what makes the word effective for salvation? The answer was that God's spirit causes the reading, especially the preaching of the word, to enlighten, convince, and humble sinners. For what purpose? To drive sinners out of themselves. You see, to give up and abandon that we can reform our lives, that we can discipline ourselves to being godly, that we call upon a God who can only make us godly through his power, through the coming of his son, Jesus Christ. And that by he drawing us to Christ, he then, God conforms us to his image and likeness. How powerful are those words that we spoke? How even more powerful is the God who is able to do that? And that brings us to that third and most important principle of God is that he's omnipotent. What does that mean? He is able to do all that he desires in his holy will. He has the power Listen to me. He has the power to deliver you from your sins. Look at verse 13. Did you see it? For you created me in my innermost being. What, what is that? God created you in spirit and soul and in body. Just let that sink in for a moment. You're more than just a piece of flesh. You are, a, you are a body and a spirit united in the person of who you are. We try to display that by using fingerprinting technology today. When, when someone is, is arrested, they book them, right? And they take them in and the first thing they do is they take scans of their fingerprints. Why? Because there is a fingerprint on your hand, on your finger that is unique to you. No one else has that fingerprint. Can you fathom that? And in the same way, no one has the innermost being you have. No one is you. You are distinctly different from everyone ever born in the world. He goes on to say that in my innermost being you created me, but then you knitted me together in my mother's womb. You know, the technology we have now to do sonograms and to see the images of those who are unborn, I'll never forget. We had been trying to have children for years. We'd given up. Don't know how it happened. Say, Robert, it's not that hard. It was for us. I'll never forget it was a Wednesday night. It was 3 o'clock in the morning. I w was dreaming. My wife called me into the kitchen, and she said, Honey, I've got something I've got to tell you. And I said, Well, well what is it? We, we were desperately broken. And she said, I'm pregnant. And I said, That's wonderful. And she said, no, there's something else I've got to tell you. Now, this is the dream. There's something else I've got to tell you. And I said, what's that? She said, you're not the dad. 
And I walked up and looked at my wife laying in bed, and she had this contented smile on her face, kind of like John Schuler did this morning as we got gathered for worship, just this contented smile, and you thought to yourself, oh, oh there's something wrong here. <laughs> and I couldn't sleep the rest of the morning, and when Cindy woke up, I told her I've had a dream and told her what the dream was, and she looked at me and she said, well, there's something I have to tell you. <laughs> and I said, what is it? She said, I'm pregnant, <laughs> but you are the daddy. And I said, well, we'll find out in nine months, won't we? <laughs> Why do I tell you this? Because it was in those moments that God had knitted together and formed that child. Just like he did you. Now, if he has that power, and, and dare, dare we ever think that we have the power to create life, Dare we ever think that? If he has the power to create you in such a wonderful way by knitting you together, couldn't you also say in verse 14, I praise you because I'm fearfully and wonderfully made and your works are wonderful and I know it full well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was in the secret place, when I was woven together into the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed body. And all the days, now here it is, all the days ordained for me were written in your book before one of them came to be. What is David saying? He's pointing out the truth that if God created you and he knitted you together in the hidden place of your mother's womb, then he has ordained the days that you were to live before him. He has ordained those days, the day you were born, the day you will die. They're written in the book. Say, what book? If you go to Revelations, you'll see the book of life, and the name's written there. And those who believe in Christ are listed name by name by name. the glory of this moment and yet the mystery why mystery David is remembering how he was created by God and he is now looking to God to help him in a moment when life is uncertain he has no power to affect his circumstances of life you remember the story of David God said, David, I'm choosing you as king. And then he suffered for years being hunted by Saul. Every day was a day he thought he might lose his life or something would happen that would undermine or destroy any future he hoped for. And yet time after time after time, God delivered him and protected him so that God's purposes would be carried out to the glory of God. Isn't that a powerful thing? When you and I begin to think about the circumstances of our life, sometimes our own created circumstances where we have faltered or failed others or failed God and we think we've blown it so badly, surely God can't save me now. And he does because he's all-powerful. 
Why? Why, even in the scriptures, you'll find that Joseph, as he was being sold by his brothers into slavery because of his pompous attitude that he was loved by daddy more than his brothers were loved by their daddy, was thrown into prison and sent to Egypt, there suffering those days, and finally has the moment where he can get even with his brothers for all the evil they have done to him. And they fall on their knees begging for mercy, he says, what you intended for evil, God meant for good. How could someone say such a thing? Because he knows the power of God. You see, that's the God who we have come to know. Not the God who comes to punish evil because he's some narcissist, but a God who's come to save and then taking our form, suffering like us in our image and being raised on the third day after paying for our sins on the cross so that now he may deliver us who were once impossibly lost to our sins into the very presence of God who can stand no sin and receive us and claim us and hold us to himself. How powerful is this God? How mysterious and glorious he truly is, that he is not like me at all. And then in the last section, the, the one that's called the capstone of God's attributes, the, the thing that makes God really God, is his holiness. That God is endlessly and always perfect. Immediately we say, I'm not. Remember Isaiah when he stood before God and saw him? He saw the majesty and glory of God and said, Oh, woe is me. I am a man of unclean lips among a people of unclean lips. Let me tell you, if you haven't had that experience with God, then you're not born again. And yet, if you have had that experience with God, then you have become aware of just how wretchedly sinful this world is. And you despise it. That's what he's saying. It, it, some commentators say, well, this last part must have been an addendum. David would not have said this, but I, I don't believe that's true. I think that it's part of this because when you come to know the holiness of God and the salvation that he offers us in Jesus Christ, there, was, there is within us this incredible disdain for anything that violates God's law. We don't like it. We see it and we are repulsed by it because we know that is not what God intended when he created us or this world. And David cries out in that moment and says, If only you, God, would slay the wicked. You know what the problem is? He's one of the wicked. Do you remember? When he had grown older and was on the rooftops and saw a woman who was bathing and fell into sin. Not only did he take her as his own, he then arranged for her husband to be murdered.
you and I would say, kill him. How dare he do that? Oh God, if you would just slay the wicked, get these bloodthirsty people away from me. See, there's the problem. And there reveals the human heart that is desperately wicked. We see wickedness and we always attribute it to someone else, don't we? And David even relishes in it in verse 21. Do I not hate those who hate you, Lord, and abhor those who are in rebellion against you? Absolutely. But then here is the most incredible part of the psalm. Of the song. You see it in verse, verse 24 or verse 23. Search me, O God. Why does he say that? Know my heart. What is my heart? My heart is desperately wicked. That's what the Bible says. I'm as fickled as fickled can be. I am prone to do whatever I feel is benefiting me. And David says, God, God, search me. Know my heart. Test me. Why, why, do, we, why do we want to be tested is it for God's benefit? No, it's for David's. Test me, God. Show me where there's any anxious thought. Well, why does he say anxious thought? Well, an, another, another way of interpreting it is any misgivings I have about who you are. Not merely a, a thought and is in something in my mind, but the internal wrestling that comes with the knowledge that God sees everything. God knows everything. God is, is everywhere and there is nothing that he will not do that will not fulfill his purpose. But most of all, that God is holy. He cannot tolerate evil. And yet there is evil within me. And he cries out, see if there is any offensive way in me. Do you know that's the pain of the gospel? Us to love him with all our heart, mind, soul, and strength. In the first four commandments, he teaches us that we're to have no other gods to worship him alone. Do not replace him with anything else that is an idol. That we're to love him in such manner that we're to respect his name and to worship him. One day out of seven. And then God goes on to teach us that the way that we are to live as we love him is to reflect in how we treat one another. We're not to steal from one another or commit adultery or we're not to lie about other people or we're not to covet what they want. Have I missed one? We're not to kill. I want you to know I have never murdered anybody with my hands, but I have with my eyes and with my heart. But God's design was I'd never be a part of that. And when I ask God to search me, there is a danger here. Search me and know me, God. Test my heart. There is a danger that I somehow will try to show God that I'm not as bad as I really am. 
or justify something that I, well, they hurt me first. And in trying to self-justify my sin, I, I reach for the brokenness in my life to somehow smooth over the, the ways in which I have faltered in God, living for God. I make excuses. Or I tell white lies. You ever heard of white lies? No, in that brokenness, David cries out, he says, God, I am broken, aren't you? And as he cries out to God, he is calling God to take notice of him since God knows me and he sees me and he is everywhere and he, he is the power to judge my life for what it is because he is holy. David cries out and says, God, woe is me. And there God amazingly reaches out in compassion and brings his salvation, his presence to David. Isn't that what Jesus was, God's presence among us? So that now as David has come to the end of himself, he can now begin to recover what God intended for his life, and he can begin to pursue that in ways that he never could before. How do I know that? Look in the last part of verse 24. God, lead me in the way everlasting. He's not telling God, okay, now that I know what's right and wrong, I'll take care of it, God. No, no, that, that's the problem. The prayer is, God, you who have the power over sin, you lead me. Kind of reminds me of a passage that we've heard before in the Psalms, doesn't it? Psalm 23. Do, do you know that Psalm? The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. He makes me, doesn't ask me. He makes me to lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He, he re restores my soul. Can you say the rest with me? He, he leads me in the paths of righteousness for his name's sake. And yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for thou art with me. Thy rod and thy staff, they comfort me. Thou preparest a table before me in the presence of my enemies. Thou uh, anoints my head with oil, my cup. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house. Do, do you believe that's what God has done for you. And you had no part in it. It's what he did for you. To the glory of God. God, you, you amaze me. Amen? Let's pray. Our gracious God and our Father,
You, you know us. Maybe our prayer should be, if you do, search me and know me. Know my ways. Search my heart. And see if there is any wicked way in me. And then lead me in the way of everlasting life. Oh, God, help me. Help me, Jesus. There's no one else who can. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, we pray.